vengeance. I am the knight. I am Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to the that. Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on? Matt, first I'm going to ask you in the spirit of what I have to say next to just leave that there in the introduction, just just leave it, because we have to open here with a very rare correction and or retraction in one of our most recent episodes we decided to do a top 10 list off the top of our head the top 10 list of batman's best villains the the who's who among the rogues gallery and as a recap i will uh i'll I'll give you all the list again because i still have it right here uh at number 10 we've got mad hatter nine mr freeze eight poison ivy Seven, the Riddler. Six, Scarecrow. Five, Penguin. Four, Bane. Three, Raish. Two, Two Face, of course. And at number one, with many, many, many bullets, Joker. My good brother Matt here, upon editing the episode, realized we got one big goddamn omission on that list. Yep. We going through and talking about all the possible rogues and you know well, this guy and nah, nah, he's not that great nah nah you know catwoman's really more of an anti-hero harley's more of an anti-hero nah nobody wants hush on that list court of is too new completely forgot Clayface. fucked up on that one yeah because hatter hatter's a, a decent bat rogue but especially as we've reached the past 20 years where we're not dealing with four five six rotating clay faces when it's just basil carlo as clay face the composite clay face I, that's an important stipulation here the, this has to be the the composite clay face the one who you know he he took a, a near hero turn in detective and then has you know since sort of gone back to being a rogue it's like yeah we messed up on that one it'll never happen again no more off-the-cuff top 10 lists. We've learned our lesson. <laughs> if it sounds like it's going to be an off-the-cuff top 10 list, guess what? We scripted it. Nah, that would require far more thought into the bits at the beginning of a show than either of us put into them. But, you know, it's it's good to be talking about Clayface and his, uh, his stretch as a hero because that comes up today. It does. Because today is another... And the last for probably a little while of our Thrice Told Tales episodes with three variations on the same story. This time, it is the tale of Hugo Strange and his Monster Man. The first of these stories is The Giants of Hugo Strange. This is from Batman Volume 1, Number 1, written by Bill Finger, pencils by Bob Kane, inks and letters by Jerry Robinson, with no colors or editor credited. The cover date is March of 1940. After escaping jail, Professor Hugo Strange releases his new creations, monstrous men changed by his science to terrorize Gotham, and Batman must stop them. So we're back with Batman number one. 
because we did just a few weeks ago the two Joker stories from this book. Now we're hitting Strange and the Monster Men, and that will just leave us with one other story, the first appearance of Catwoman, to do at some point in the future in a Catwoman episode. What an incredibly influential book for the history of Batman. It really is. And this one, I'd have to go back and say this for sure. And I'm not 100%. But this is, if not the final, one of the final books where Batman not only kills people, but kills people with a gun. I've read a lot of these early Golden Age, and I don't have a distinct recollection of Batman using firearms after this issue. So this might be the last time Batman uses a gun to kill just sort of indiscriminately when it's not called out as something that is a huge deal. So we're not making a distinction between say like sidearms and bat planes. Oh yeah. I mean, this is not him, you know, making bullets out of a candlestick and shooting the monk. I mean, he's got a machine gun on the bat plane and is mowing them down. Indiana Jones in the last crusade style. Sorry, Sean. They got us. <laughs> That's pretty good. Right? Pretty good. It's by far my favorite of the Indiana Jones movies. I mean, Raiders is great, but there's something about Last Crusade. And it was the first one I saw on the big screen. And it's the same summer as it's summer of 89. So you get Indy and Batman that summer. And whew, that was a good summer of movies. Mm, almost as good as 77. Another Yes, another tentpole year of great cinema. So this story, this one is not quite as strong as those Joker, the, the two Joker stories. It's not to say it's it's bad by any stretch, but this one isn't quite as fully formed a Batman story as those two are. And it is a kind of wild science fiction story, which all three of the ones tonight are. These are all a little on the science fiction-y side, but not down the deep rabbit hole of your weird 50s Batman fighting aliens science fiction stories. And Hugo Strange had already appeared. Hugo Strange is one of the first returning Bat villains. The first would have been Dr. Death, who appeared in Detective 29 and then 30. Not necessarily a two-parter, because there wasn't a cliffhanger, but it was just... he fights him in 29, and then he fights him again in 30. But Strange had appeared in Detective Comics issues before Batman number one. So he is, I guess, the first cross-title villain. Uh, first appearance was Detective 36. At what point does Strange start to show up in conjunction with uh, Arkham Asylum or its predecessors? The first time Strange is a shrink is post-crisis. That's when he becomes not just a mad scientist, but specifically a psychiatrist. Whether or not he's directly related to Arkham at that point, I can't recall. I think he's more the pop TV shrink in that one, something more akin to the very end of the second story tonight. But that is Legends of the Dark Knight 11 through 15, Prey, which 
the next time we do a strange episode or we do a Doug Mensch, Paul Glacy episode, that would be a story to handle there. I swear to God, I thought we'd done Prey. We haven't for the show. We've talked about it a couple times. Because mm. there's Prey, and then there's a sequel, Terror, which is Strange and Scarecrow and Batman from the same creative team. Many, many, many years later. That's like 140s, 150s, somewhere around there, I think. Maybe I've just seen those covers a whole bunch. Yeah. I mean, that's Glacy at the height of his power before he went a little over the top and weird when you see that his work on Catwoman with Brubaker that never quite hits as well. It feels like in contemporary stories, it seems almost like 50-50, whether he is connected with Arkham in somehow, uh, in yeah. some way. Yeah, I mean, he's his most recent appearances tied him in Arkham uh, right at the beginning of the Infinite Frontier era when he was maybe not Arkham itself, but working in the aftermath of A-Day and Joker War, gathering up members of the Joker's gang and doing horrible psychological experiments on them because he's a monster. And that's how he ran afoul of Harley. Batman the Animated Series, Hugo, is a shrink mad scientist like he the one episode that really features him he's got the memory machine that lets him see the memories of the people that he's helping and finds out bruce's secret in the batman he is the head of arkham so that's where he shows up there and as we know from our recent episode about 66 he's the head of arkham there as well and then he's the not the mayor of gotham but the head of Arkham City in that game. You don't want that. No. But this specific story, I mean, again, this is a, a what 15-page Golden Age story. There isn't as much to this as there was to those Joker stories. It's basically Strange breaks out of Arkham. Strange kidnaps Five men from the, quote, Metropolis Insane Asylum. Again, not at a point where Gotham has a name in itself. And we are 30 plus years away from Arkham being a thing. Then he turns them into monster men and sets them loose. And Batman must fight and kill these, what do you think, 12 foot tall lumbering brutes? Something like that? Yeah, they are certainly not big as uh, some of the monster men we see in the uh, the later stories. The monster men gradually increase in size yes. uh, as we're reading today. We're not talking kaiju here. We're just talking really big guys. Probably two tall men standing on their shoulders. Some huge friggin' guys. Oh, yeah. You don't want to run across them in a, in a dark alley or a brightly lit alley or, or any alley, really. This one also has Batman at his most almost comedically, scientifically brilliant. Strange injects him with the Monster Man serum and suddenly, you know, he's got five minutes once he's gotten through everything to, to deal with it. And in four minutes, he comes up with an antidote, not having ever dealt with the serum in any way before. Batman is, is a smart guy, but that's 
a level of hyper competence that even Grant Morrison would look at and they would think is a bit much. And we're borrowing a plot device from the Joker story in that we have some kind of poison that is designed to take effect at exactly the right moment. Yes. Precisely 18 hours from now. And it's funny because the ticking clock with that would have been, I think, much more interesting if it wasn't, okay, I've been knocked unconscious by a monster man for 17 hours and 45 minutes. Like, There's not a lot of time there to do a lot of Batman dealing with the ticking clock. It's more, oh, okay, I'm awake. Now I have to kill these three monster men real quick so I can miraculously come up with a cure. Like you just couldn't, you couldn't keep Batman out for the whole 18 hours? It's certainly a fun for certain values of fun story. It's, this is not boring. This is fairly well illustrated. I mean, again, you've got, Kane and Robinson, the same artist team from the Joker stories. And the Monster Men are pretty creepy to look at. You don't get close-ups of them like you will in the later stories, because this is not an era where you get a ton of close-ups in general. A lot of these are wide shots. But the the lumbering bodies, the tattered clothing on them, and, and also... Where do you think Hugo Strange got clothes that fit these guys? Bulletproof clothes? Did he make them? Well, the clothes just expand with the uh, with the guys. Ah, so Reed Richards stole unstable molecules from Hugo Strange, some kind of cross-dimensional thing? Uh, yeah. Yeah, ah, that makes sense. <laughs> I just you I want to see Hugo Strange go to a tailor and be like, "So I need bulletproof clothes for a 12-foot tall man." And his giant dong. At least, though, we're not getting into monster dong territory, like uh, like some of the unspeakable penises that might be in uh, some of the later stories. <laughs> but I got to say, I liked just this kind of basic Hugo Strange story. His motivations get more and more abstract, I think, to the point uh, in the third story where they're almost bizarre. But here he's just like, look, I want some big dudes to wreck shit while I go rob banks. I can appreciate that. I want to do my science. I need funding for it. So I'm going to let loose some crazy monster guys so I can steal money. Yeah. Like they're not part of revenge. They're not some weird psychoanalysis statement. They're just, yeah, I need some fucking money. And that's something we'll see with Strange more and more as the character develops the the psychology thing and his particular obsession with Batman. Strange spends more time in a Batman costume than anybody who isn't Bruce Wayne or Dick Grayson. Mm, like that's are, that's strange. Yes, <laughs> there are numerous <laughs> stories. He he has one in Prey. He has one in one of the other stories we're doing tonight. He has one in that most recent Harley Quinn story. I'm pretty sure he wears one in uh, Strange Apparitions, which we will be covering in the very, very near future. Maybe I might be mixing that one up. But yeah, the Strange's obsession with being and becoming Batman is... Something that, yeah, no, I was right. It comes from Strange Apparitions. That's the first time it appears. 
There's not a lot to this story. We don't even have much in the way of a Bruce Wayne plot, except for you only see Bruce when he's listening to the radio and hears about some monster men, which is one of the things that makes this, I think, a little less than the Joker stories where there is some Bruce Wayne stuff in there where he has to go to Gordon to set up Batman's plan and even the monk where, again, there's different elements of Batman. This is a purely Batman story without any real Bruce Wayne to it, which is very different from the next story. Quite true. And we also get uh, a convenient, maybe he's dead moment here when Batman punches Hugo Strange and Hugo Strange breaks through a window and seems to plummet to his death. But even Batman's like, yeah, I got a feeling he'll be back. Even Batman what, a year into his existence is already becoming genre savvy when it comes to if there's no body, the guy is probably still alive? Perhaps we'll meet again. Oh, and one of the Monster Men does his best King Kong impression. That's a beat that we see in uh, in one of the other stories, too. Yeah, there's a lot of, of scaling of buildings in these stories. The one thing about the art here that struck me as particularly weird and made me think that this one is much more of a Bob Kane than a Jerry Robinson, you've got numbered panels, which shows absolutely a lack of confidence that the panels are laid out in a way that readers can just follow them. And someday we're going to read, you know, for a bonus episode or something, stuff about about this era and about the golden age and about Bob Kane. And that strikes me as a Bob Kane thing that Jerry Robinson went into more thoroughly laid out pages and was like, Oh, this isn't good. So I'm going to have to add these little numbers when I'm lettering this thing to make it clear where you're supposed to go. There are some layouts now where I wish they had the numbers. (laughs) I'm personally a fan of the little arrows that can go from panel to panel when you really hey, need them. Hey, th- those aren't bad either. But yeah, it's so fascinating to watch layouts develop and how, I swear to God, some people are making the same mistakes going against the natural eye and inclination to read stories. What's strange is we don't see those numbers in either of the Joker stories. That is strange. Just this one. I'd have to go back and read the Catwoman story again. So it might be there too. But that's why I think this one was more heavily Kane than Robinson. Because I think Robinson had a better feel for layouts. Kane was a noted tracer. Like there are panels you can find in early Batman stories that are panels from famous newspaper strips that Kane just traced and added like Batman cowl to them. It just, it struck me as an very odd because we don't see it in the other stories in this issue. I'll tell you this, the Catwoman story, some panels are numbered. Hmm. Maybe there were a handful of them in the Joker, but this one, every page has those numbered panels pretty much. Oh, I see what it is in the Catwoman story. They are page numbers within the story. Ah, okay. The numbers are in the panel. Where, exactly where the other stories have the panel numbers. Weird. Quite weird. 
Maybe there was no editor on this book. I, I feel like the editor is at this point, this was such a disposable medium that it was kind of like, yeah, you're not showing anybody, you know, any dong that's going to get us in trouble. You're good. It was a real cursory pass. You're not dropping any, well, especially you're not dropping any racial slurs, but this is the 40s. You could probably get away with the racial slurs. <laughs> Don't talk bad about the whites. Yeah. 40. So we're, we're not in World War II just yet. So it's like, okay, America isn't. Okay, no bad mouth in Hitler just yet. <laughs> in another year. They buy a lot of cars. I, I don't have anything else. Uh, that means it's time for Batman number one. Back on the big board. Yes, we are back with another story from a book we have already put on here. So, And, and before you start, today, it's perfect. I feel like I just don't want to put anything else on this list. I'm so happy with it right now. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can see why. Yeah. Uh, but we're going to start uh, with number one, which is, as ever, the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Down at number 50 is Going Straight, Laughter After Midnight, the Batman Adventures annual where we see various villains try to walk the straight and narrow. And coming in at 69, it's Detective Comics 784, 786, made of wood. <laughs> but uh, down at 100 is Trust, Detective 833 to 834, Batman and Zatanna versus the Joker. Down at number 150 is the Joker's Comedy of Errors and its innumerable boners. So many boners. Down at 200 is Gotham by Gaslight. And all the way at the bottom at 216, it's White Knight. All right. So this is not going to be up where the previous stories from this book were because Joker is up in the, is at number 60? Yeah, no, uh-uh. No, this is though going to probably be on the higher end of some of the golden age stuff. Batman versus the Vampire, the Monk story, is all the way down at 189. I think this is, despite the lack of Bruce Wayne-ness to it, is still better than that. This doesn't have some of the weird leaps of logic that that one does, or the fact that Batman ignores a doctor who's like, yes, take her to Romania, the land of werewolves. Yeah, again, it's it's just a it's a straightforward story. I think it also beats the next Golden Age story above that, which is The Search for Santa Claus from Batman, Volume 1, Number 33, which is fun, but this is a little more substantive. Absolutely. Let's see if we can find a ceiling for this. You know what? I don't think it definitely doesn't go above the boners. It doesn't go above 150. <laughs> no, no. that That's a good ceiling for this. Um, I was looking right at Dark Knight at 156. I'm thinking 160s, upper 160s. As in the, the near the top, the, the low numbers there. Yeah, um, really wasn't a whole lot to Batman Noel. 
That yeah, that's exa- I was looking right there around Noel Little Red Book, another story where there there isn't a ton to it. It's just a very simple story. This is probably better than Leaves of Grass, where Jason Woodrue tries to get the whole world high. Crazy. Oh boy. This either goes right in between Noel and Little Red Book or in between Little Red Book and Leaves of Grass. Noel only wins the day over this because Noel is so friggin' pretty. Very true. I'd probably put it above Little Red Book. Okay. So the new 163. The 163. Our second story is Batman and the Monster Men. This is Batman and the Monster Men number one to six. With story and art by Matt Wagner, colors by Dave Stewart, letters by Rob Lee, and edited by Brenda Montclair and Bob Shrek. The cover dates are January to June of 2006. The lives of Batman, Professor Hugo Strange, mobster Sal Maroney, and businessman Norman Madison, father of Bruce Wayne's girlfriend Julie, are tangled together in a web of love, crime, and monsters in a tale from early in Batman's career. This is the first half of Dark Moon Rising, the two six-issue miniseries, the second of which we already covered as Batman and the Mad Monk. I will say right out of the gate, while this is by no means bad, this is the lesser of the two. I think Mad Monk was a stronger story than this one was. Hmm. Really? I'm just so impressed with Wagner's, uh, Wagner's work generally. Oh, um, no, no argument there. And I'm sure we had this discussion last time. So many times with the writer artist pairing, it's good art, but uh, writing is not exactly what you want it to be. Like this guy could fly solo, right? He could do uh, his own book and somebody else could come in and be the art and you would be absolutely happy. But the art here is spectacular, too. We are definitely going to have to cover in some bonus stuff, some Grendel. Because you get both there. You get both Wagner doing double duty and Wagner writing with different artists. And it's so fascinating. There's one set of stories that's Wagner and Tim Sale. And yeah. Yeah, some of the the dark future stuff. Because Grendel starts in the present and the epic winds its way hundreds and thousands of years into the future. So this is sale doing like crazy sci-fi with Wagner story. Okay. Sci- it's like science fantasy with you know, wild, you know, sci-fi stuff and vampires. It's, it's good stuff, but this all obviously is before the mad monk. This sets up a lot of the stuff we saw there. We see, Norman Madison beginning his downfall, the the loss of his company, the loss of his sense of self. We see a lot of Maroney. We get Bruce and Julie's relationship building. And we get a good feel for who Hugo Strange is. The interesting thing to me about uh, old Norm here in comparing where he is in the second story to this one is that at the conclusion of this first story, he's basically okay, right? Like Batman has has covered his debts to the mob. Uh, he could, you know, find a way back to respectability, but it's this obsession with Batman that 
drives him to ruin. Yeah, he is a guy who is so obsessed with his own moral forthrightness, uprightness, that the fact that he screwed up and that Batman, the sort of terrifying avatar, knows it and is going to be coming for him, despite Batman never giving any indication that he is coming for him. It's his own feelings of what he has done wrong that end up coming to kill him by the end of Mad Monk. The only spots where I thought the writing was a little bit suspect is uh, is Norman's drinking. I am not a big fan of the the garbled speech as, you know, like drunk speech, like just show him drinking, you know, let your art speak to the fact that he's a mess. Like you don't have to, you don't have to slash. It's the lesson that actors are told when it comes to playing drunk, you don't play drunk. You play drunk trying to play sober. Mm -hmm. And here he's writing him drunk versus writing him talking to his daughter he should be almost stiff. He should be trying to put on a front. Exactly. Julie, that he's not sloshed out of his mind. The one thing that bugged me, and that's a, a valid point, the other thing that bugged me, I don't quite understand why Strange needed the somewhat stereotypical Indian valet. Yeah, that's that's a bit weird, especially as he's not trying to make a point, you know, going back to the other Monster Mint story, because he doesn't have the valet there and that's not a character that i remember there being any instances of strange having a character like that around him and a character who suddenly four issues in gets a motivation other than he's loyal to strange because strange is paying him or he's loyal to the man's ideas like oh conveniently one of the monster men is his brother yes who has some ill-defined disability there wasn't that sour note in Mad Monk. The only sour note there is the one you point out at the very end, the kind of white savior, Julie Madison going off to Africa thing. But that's one page, two pages versus Sanjay who keeps showing up. And I'm like, why is this character here? Why is this guy who's like Daddy Warbucks equally uncomfortable Indian valet? Like, is he bald? Hugo Strange is bald like Daddy Warbucks. Is this a, you know, Little Orphan Annie riff? I don't get it. But every time that character shows up, it kind of threw me a little bit because I just don't understand why that character needed to be there. It's a good point. Very good point. But again, it's one discordant note in a story that is, generally speaking, really good and just beautiful or horrifying as it needs to be. Because the monster men here are, they're still recognizably monster men, as opposed to where we'll get in the next story. Our final story is just let your imagination go hog wild, artist. Yeah, that's some kaiju stuff right there. Here they are again, 12 to 15 feet tall, and there's additional you know, growths and tumors to them, but they're still recognizably human for values of human. Maybe with a, a touch of cannibalism. Oh, 
I think a touch of cannibalism might be an understatement. There is a considerable amount of cannibalism here. Man, when you get hungry, like, meat is meat. And if you're a 16-foot-tall monster man, everything looks like meat. It's like, you know, where does an 800-pound gorilla sit? Wherever he wants. Yes. Also, we talked about this with Mad Monk as well. Wagner does tremendous costume work. Not just, like, comic book character like Batman costume, but the clothing of his characters. The Gotham Institute charity ball, the suits, the dresses, all of that is really outstanding and shows a real eye for that. Although I will say in that scene, the woman who kind of pokes at Hugo Strange about you know, repairing you know, genetic defects, and she kind of calls out how Strange is short and bald and nearsighted. The first time I saw that character, I thought that was Selena. The haircut and everything. It yeah. Looks, it looks like Selena. But the minute she starts talking, it's like, no, Selena's not that gauche. But the design looks a lot like Selena Kyle. And you especially know that it's not Selena when she winds up uh, monster food. Yeah. Yeah. Quickly and easily monster food. Minimal Alfred in this story. Less Alfred than in the next one. And less Jim, too. We don't get a lot of either of them. Oh, in the third story, Jim's just like standing around and just, man, all this sucks. I hate it. Yeah. But yeah. here we still get more of that year one character development. Gordon struggling with his role as someone sworn to uphold the law and Batman working outside of the law and yet towards gold, uh, Gordon's same goals. And man, I love the politics of the, the GCPD, uh, both with the commissioner and, uh, you know, with that, that scene with the two cops where he's like, uh, Hey, hey partner, the, the Batman here just brought down four guys and uh without firing a gun maybe you could could lower yours and we we get some time with commissioner grogan the one who replaced Loeb, who appears very little because he's a minor character it's like oh it's kind of neat to see a guy who isn't quite as gleefully corrupt as Loeb was but who is still i don't get the impression that grogan is mobbed up like Loeb was, but that he is just more a political animal, more appointed by the mayor to get things in line. And if the mayor is mobbed up, then by extension, but he himself is not quite as crooked. Well, I think our rule for mayors can easily apply to commissioners. You know, the mayor of Gotham has to be either corrupt or incompetent. And if uh, the commissioner is not named uh, Gordon or Montoya, corrupt or incompetent most likely although i think we do have some exceptions yeah god bless him harvey bullock's brief tenure as commissioner sadly probably means incompetent bullock was never meant to be a police commissioner no he was supposed to be a handsome hollywood actor matt we don't talk about that (laughs) (laughs) but yeah jim gordon Sarah Essen Gordon during her brief tenure in the 90s as commissioner and Montoya are probably the only three who weren't one of the above. I love 
again, how we saw it in Mad Monk, how there are bits here where Wagner directly homages some of the stuff from the original story. Especially when you get to the end and he pits two of the monster men against each other and lets them kill each other. And here, Batman also is not above killing these things, but it's also fairly clear that there's not really any humanity left in them. Do you think in the third story they made it a point to start with dead people? Yeah, yeah. I think they really went out of their way to let the Bat family be able to eliminate these things and not have to deal with the questions of, oh, well, they're killing people. It's like, no, these things are reanimated corpses. They're basically zombies. So you can put them down. They're not Borg. You don't have to worry about trying to save them. Right. Yeah, no, they're dead. This has the beginnings of, or a similar beat to Strange's obsession with Batman that we'll see in the third story and in other Strange stories. But here we're just getting the very beginning of it. And we're getting a very specific reason for it. That here Strange isn't tall and sort of handsome. He's short. And while he's trained himself and has given himself a wide muscular frame, he's still small of stature. And Batman, with his brilliance and his physical talent, is the ideal that Strange wants to transform himself into. And that's what this Monster Man experiment is. It's to create something that doesn't create Monster Man like the other two stories, but that is eventually going to allow people to rewrite their genetics to make themselves better. And speaking of genetics and preparation and, and that sort of thing, I liked how Julie notes Bruce Wayne's diet. Uh, the steak and vegetables, same scene where Bruce passes on a drink. You get the sense that these are the parts of Batman that show through Bruce, that if someone was paying attention, they could maybe figure out. It's why Bruce at a party is always drinking ginger ale or iced tea, because it's easy to pass that off as champagne or a dark whiskey. As long as nobody gets close enough to sniff it and not detect any alcohol, he can pass. But one-on-one like that, it's much more difficult. And it's also early enough that he probably hasn't picked up all of those talents for deceit that he's going to over the course of years. And maybe with Julie, he feels like he doesn't have to lie as much. Yeah, he obviously cares for her a great deal. And we see that over the course of the whole Sorry, following the arc of it, it is tragic that in the end she leaves because he cared about her in a way that we don't see Batman care about a lot of the love interests that we are going to see over the course of many years. We didn't talk about him. All. There's also a lot of Moroni in here and not none of the Roman. The Roman is a specter in this story. He's the thing hanging over Moroni and over Gotham. One other quibble that I have with this one more than I did with Mad Monk, and it might have been there Mad Monk and didn't strike me as much. There are a 
couple of real wink at the camera lines in this particular volume. When you first deal with Maroney and he's on the phone with the Roman, he makes some comment about Dent. To me, one of these days, I'm going to get that guy. <laughs> and Jim and Batman are talking and Jim says something about, you know, the mo- when he's talking about the monster men, Gordon's like, you're kidding. And Batman's like, I'm no joker. Yeah. Really? And we do open, the first page is Norman reading the newspaper and it's an article about the death, quote unquote, of the Red Hood. So we're setting ourselves firmly in a very specific point in time right here at the beginning. More so when you know how it ends, where it you know, ends right as we're getting to uh, Man Who Laughs. I wish Wagner had done another one of these. I enjoy these stories. We're going to do Trinity soon enough, which is another great story. I mean, Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman versus Raish, Artemis in her mercenary days, and Bizarro. It's fun. Oh, oh, I've read Trinity uh, many, many years ago and certainly enjoyed it. But uh, this year one era is just the the Batman shit that I love. Like, God damn it. Give me more of that. Uh, Mobsters and tenuous alliances with GCPD and making inroads with Gordon and just basic storytelling shit. Ah, yes, that's the good stuff. Okay. I mean, I think what it well that really says is we need to cover Batman Grendel, the first Batman Grendel miniseries, which it's been a long time since I read it, but again, is a very grounded, I don't think it's year one era, but it is a really grounded Batman versus a character who is very much his opposite number because that's what hunter rose is hunter rose is another guy who pulls himself up from his brute straps who trains himself to be the the pinnacle of human achievement only he's the world's greatest assassin and mob boss i do like the other bit of the end where strange after escaping all of this starts using his psychiatric credentials to be this pop psychologist analyzing Batman to basically shield himself from Batman's revenge. Because oh, Batman, yeah. It's clever. It's like, oh, if I go after him now, it looks like I'm petty and coming at him for talking about me on the news. And as he says, he's hiding right out in the open. That's that's a nice, nice little bit of storytelling. And I also feel like we're early enough in Batman's career that he can make mistakes because not just his interaction with Norman that sets Norman down that path of losing himself. But when he confronts Maroney at the end and basically says Norman Madison is off limits, that's sloppy. If things had gone another way, that could have allowed Maroney to trace things back to now who would want to protect this guy Mm -hmm. we're at a point where Batman can make mistakes and it feels organic to the character but I mean how else would you get Norman out from the sharks right you can't just pay them money because they're always going to have some kind of grudge with Norman 
I thought it's very interesting to see this guy from a world of business who has no understanding of how the mob operates. Like the mob does not have a customer service department, right? If you are pissed with them, then uh, you're just pissed. There's no recourse. You know, you can't file a complaint. They will just hurt you. Yeah, that's the great thing. Watching Norman just mouth off at Maroney and Maroney's thugs over and over again. You're just reading this. And if you know anything about this, you're just cringing because you're waiting for one of these guys to, if Norman is lucky, just pistol whip him. If not, just shoot him for acting like he's so goddamn superior. And, And Strange has the right approach to dealing with the mob, right? If you don't like your relations, uh, just kill them. That final battle at the Romans country estate, where it's just mobsters versus monster men. I mean, it goes about as well as you'd expect because they're giant monster men. And these are a bunch of mobsters who just keep firing guns at them. And it's not doing anybody any good. But boy, Wagner draws the hell out of that whole sequence. God, so much blood and goop. Maybe this is too much, but I think this is so damn funny. When Maroni and his like conciliary major domo make it up to the roof where the Roman leaves a helicopter, well, come on, you got to fly us out of here. I don't know how to fly this thing. I thought you did. Okay, now that is pretty funny because, like, yeah, it's like your first instinct is, hey, we got to get out of here. Let's take the helicopter until you get up there. And it's like, oh shit, none of us know how to fly a helicopter. Ah, this thing has too many buttons. And, and then you know you just get a giant monster and you attach a monster man to it and have him run off the roof and blow himself up with it. Good use of a helicopter, Batman. Talking about the the scene, and I'm just looking at it now, it's a two-page spread, and I've noticed this great detail. There is uh, a dead mobster's arm with the gun still solidly in his hand, just ripped off at the elbow. Wagner knows how to do a two-page spread, too. Doesn't overuse them. But when he uses them, the detail and the same with splash pages, their impact hits every time. So many great close-ups of faces and expressions. Another one of Wagner's talents, his characters are always so expressive. I love Bruce after he escapes the monster man and Julie finds him and he's all beat to shit. It was Polo. I fell off my horse and it dragged me. Yeah, Bruce, you got to work on those excuses. Again, we're in year one era. I had it turned into glue. He also is, he's already scarred up. And Julie calls him out on that. God, for this Julie Madison to show have shown up again and again, you get a hint that the Snyder version from Super Heavy has some of this going on for her. Because she knows, she figures out his identity which I guess she knew from here. But again, these those aren't necessarily in canon with each other. But you don't get enough of Julie Madison in that story. Here you do. You spend enough time with her and in her head because she's one of the narrators. There's what, four? Because you've got bits from Bruce, bits from Julie, bits from Norman, and bits from Jim. And Strange, five. Yeah, which is kind of a lot. Yeah, as much as I love... We both love the character. I don't know if we needed the handful of Gordon scenes to be narrated by Gordon. That would have at least eliminated some of that. 
but the Gordon narration is so good. Like it's just Gordon just saying, like, what the what the fuck am I doing? Like, what how how fucked up is this? And it sets up the more important and full arc that we get in Mad Monk. You did kind of need it to have the complete picture by the end of the story. We're we're doing this above board. None of this fucking communicator stuff. Here's this signal I've installed. It's gonna piss off Grogan. But again, just so many like basic Batman elements are here. Yeah, you know, we see the the Batmobile making its first appearance. We see Alfred making a joke about the Batmobile, the Bat signal there in the second story. Like I just again just shove this into my veins. I love all of this shit. So, is there anything else that we want to say about this one? I don't have anything left, so that means it's time for Batman and the Monster Man on the big board. All right, so starting with Mad Monk. Mad Monk is at 49. And I don't think this beats Mad Monk, but it's not far behind Mad Monk either. No, and so this, this episode will be the beginning and end of the perfect number 69 sadly sadly but you know we'll find some other things that can can hit that spot that will be amusing you've <laughs> got to find the right story that you know look it's not going to get any better than made of wood i'm sorry so if this doesn't beat mad monk is it literally as much as mad monk is 49 and this is 50 well, let's see what we have in that area. Uh, I got Batman Adventures Annual number one at 50. Mystery Case Book at 51. Batman Hunters Cry for Blood at 52. Uh, Batman and Robin and Howard at 53. This story is more substantive than all of those. So it would be very difficult to make an argument as to why any one of those individual stories might beat this one. I think this is 50 because this is pretty much a two-part story. This is one story. It's just broken up in a very specific way. And this is the lesser of two fairly strong halves. Yeah. So I think this is our new number 50. There we go. Our final story of the night is Night of the Monster Men. This is Batman Volume 3, numbers 7 to 8, Nightwing Volume 4, numbers 5 to 6, and Detective Comics Volume 3, numbers 941 to 942. The story is by Tom King, James Tiny IV, Tim Seeley, and Steve Orlando, with a script by Steve Orlando. Art by Riley Rosmo, Rohe Antonio, and Andy McDonald, with covers by Yvonne Plasencia, Chris Sotomayor, and John Rauch. Letters by Daron Bennett, Carlos M. Mangual, and Marilyn Patrizio, and edited by Mark Doyle, Rebecca Taylor, and Dave Wilgosh. The cover dates are November to December of 2016. As a hurricane closes in on Gotham City, giant monsters appear causing the Bat family to divide their attention between the evacuation of the citizenry and fighting the monsters. But what is Hugo Strange's endgame in releasing these new monsters across Gotham? So, right out of the gate, page one, there is a little nod 
that tells you the kind of stuff you get from Steve Orlando writing DC stories. Because Orlando is one of those people like Mark Wade who has never missed a chance to drop in a weird little Easter egg. The music playing in the morgue is from Chase Lawler. Chase Lawler is the incredibly obscure 90s iteration of Manhunter, who was a rock star and sort of supernatural superhero. So just throwing that nod in there, I was like, I read it, I was like, wait a minute, that name is really familiar. Where do I know? Is that? And I looked at it, I'm like, son of a bitch, that is a friggin' 90s Manhunter who had a series for like a year. Orlando knows his like weird deep cut DC continuity and loves to throw it in there. Wild. This story is by far the wildest of the three when it comes to its monster men. These aren't monster men anymore. These are just flat out monsters. It is also felt to me like it was suffering from the weird janky continuity of the new 52 into rebirth because they're trying to you know people are asking batman about you know how can you fight these monsters it's like dude's a member of the justice league (laughs) you're acting like he hasn't fought dark side even in continuity gotham has never had monsters like this if we're at a point in continuity where we are and batman has been batman for a decade plus Yes, it has. I don't necessarily fault the writers for that because you've got to sort of deal with the weird continuity Gordian knot that was this point in history. But that threw me as I was reading this story. because It's like, why do we have to keep calling this out? This is a busy, busy story. Oh, it is. And it seems to make the same handful of points over and over again. This is a Bat family dealing with the apparent death of Tim Drake. And that that's a beat that's hit over and over and over again. That Batman doesn't want to put any more of the family in danger, but he has to not sacrifice himself or Gotham in the process. We have so many contemporary events Action, 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 action. I mean, this is six issues that I feel could have easily been told in five. And you've got three different books, all of which have their own stuff going on. And while the Nightwing chapters don't bring in a lot of the Nightwing baggage, Batman and Detective both bring in a lot of theirs. Because, yes, you got all the Tim Drake baggage from Detective. You also have the fact that these are the issues right after I Am Gotham. So you're dealing with all the Gotham Girl baggage right here, too. Gotham Girl, nothing but baggage. I forgot how much a big deal Gotham Girl was in that first year and a half. And then how she's pretty much forgotten until she becomes Thomas Wayne's Robin towards the end. That Selena comes in and it's like, oh yeah, they're, they're, yeah, Gotham Girl? Who's that? We, we, we need Batcat. Can you imagine <laughs> what would have gotten if, if Batcat had been going on during this? Yes. 
although it would have been Orlando writing it, so it might not have been, you know, oh bat, oh cat, oh cat, oh bat, oh cat. You know, constantly. God. God. Tim King. Three ideas spread out over 17 bat books. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, I mean, this is aside from one very strange page at the end, the art here is beautiful. You can see the seams across the different various creative teams. I think um, whoever opens this book, and I'm, I'm reading in this in trade, so I have like no idea like who's doing what, but whatever opens the book is the look I prefer. Rossmo. That's Riley yeah. Rossmo, who is a favorite of mine. Yeah, it's good shit. I like Rossmo a lot when he's drawing big, crazy stuff. Like he, His monster designs are always phenomenal. He did a book for image called proof about Sasquatch government agent hunting cryptids and his cryptid designs were top notch. He did the first two ish years of Stephanie Phillips, Harley Quinn. And it was wild because of how expressive his faces are. He's the current artist on Tim Drake, Robin well, I still like his stuff. I don't know if he's necessarily as suited for a book that is quite as ground level as that book because he draws big and crazy and that book needed something that was a little more nuanced. But I'll still take Riley Rossmo art any day. Yeah, he's on the Batman chapters one and four of this. This whole crossover, while fun and fine struck me as kind of a fill-in as I was reading it because it drops into the middle of these three books after each of them have wrapped up their first arcs. They all have different artists than the main artists on the books. And while they're plotted by the writers of each of those books, they are scripted by someone who is not writing any of those three titles. So it struck me as, okay, these all these books are double shipping, or most of them are double shipping. Detective and Batman definitely were. I don't remember if Nightwing was. Must have been to fit with the calendar. So we need to let our regular creative teams build up some work. So let's do this crossover with different creative teams to drop in here to allow for the double shipping to continue. Uh, in and around Halloween too, if I remember correctly. Yep. So it, it works for that. There are people who say fill in and it's like a dirty word. That's bad. It's like, no, I love a good fill in story, a good like one-off file story or something that isn't necessarily right in line with things that are going on because you can still get a great story that isn't heavily hidebound by the continuity going on around it. We don't get one-offs anymore. <laughs> Not often. No. And I think that that is a shame. You, th you think that's because the page counts are down? I think it's partially that. I think it's partially the writing for the trade mentality. Uh, yeah, how do we collect a one-off? Right, a weird one-off story in the middle of a run 
you almost have to pop that out for the trade and hope you're going to get enough of them over time to fit in a trade. Uh, yeah. I remember the uh, the Posehn and Duggan Deadpool run where you'd have that that one-off, you know, eras story. And at the end, you collect all of the eras in one trade. It's beautiful. Yeah. yeah, the same was done with James Robinson's Starman, where in between each arc, there was an issue called Times Past that featured another one of the other heroes who was Starman or a story of the shade from his, you know, two centuries of life or something like that. And they collected those in separate trades early on, but that's, that's how you have to do it. And I don't think there's always the patience for that in modern comic storytelling that you want to be able to collect each trade consecutively and not have to deal with these weird issues that drop in and out. I like this era of goth of the Gotham Knights, the team. I like that you've got Batwoman, Spoiler, Orphan, and Clayface. I mean, pretty soon Batwing and Azrael will join in too, and that's I like both of those characters. But here, I like this team, and I really like the way Tinian handled Clayface. Even though this is Orlando writing these particular issues, the plot for Clayface is really solid. And it's a shame that I do not believe Batman actually appears in it, but Orlando wrote a miniseries called Gotham City Monsters that doesn't have Clayface, but it has Batwoman and Killer Croc. And that actually uses uh, Sandra Fuller, the the lady Clayface. And it's a, a fun miniseries you know a creepy supernatural gotham story that i think i mean the argument of you know we can cover gotham stories and our batman stories would allow us to cover that someday and it's it's yeah cool do you think we have a clay face here that is stretching the narrative in terms of his power like sometimes when you overpower a character you break the narrative like in uh jj abrams trek when you have a transporter that has no limit, right? When you can beam someone across the galaxy, well, you've just eliminated the need for starships. Is a Clayface who can separate himself into multiple, you know, police officers, a Clayface who can cover a building or at least the upper floors of a building, is that a Clayface who is becoming too powerful? I think he is becoming too powerful i don't think he quite reaches it because splitting himself into multiple forms and a distancing themselves widely like we saw in the batman adventures holiday special that he you know makes himself into all those little pickpockets but they're all contained in that department store here he's a bunch of cops and they're covering the city but he's fighting it the entire time and he's stretching himself and you can see it. He's talking about how much effort it's taking. If he was just doing it without that effort, I would say yes, definitely. But I think the fact that it takes him that much effort and the fact that while this is six issues, what do you think? This takes place over the course of maybe three, four hours. 
Yeah, which just to interrupt a little pointless comment, uh, if a hurricane is hitting the city, it should not stop raining in that course of this night, which it does. Mm. Does it still rain during the eye? I mean, could the eye have been passing over at that point? That's a good point. And if that's the case, they should have said that. Yes. Okay, I'll definitely agree with that. That's like, we've got it. We know we have X amount of time when the eye is going to be hitting. So we need to be prepped for that moment. And a lot of talk of zero year. A lot of talk of zero year and the hurricane and zero year. Weird. Again, because that was fairly recent. But again, so much of this is grounded in other continuity that doesn't line up with zero year anymore. <laughs> it's, it makes my brain hurt. Yeah. It's, That's what you get for reading comics and respecting them. Two points that I we definitely want to I definitely want to hit. Point one, I love Batwoman and Batman's dynamic. Because she is again one of those few characters like Amanda Waller, Wonder Woman, Alfred superman who will just look at bruce and will call him on his bullshit bruce is her you know slightly older cousin and she is not afraid to be like dude cut it out and that's nice to have that member of the bat family because even if dick or tim will call bruce on whatever he's saying there is that paternal relationship there. And when Jason does it, it really comes off as kind of petulant. Kate stands up to Bruce as his equal. And throughout this, she's like, you've got to let them do their job. I know you're hurting because Tim died, but you've got to let them do their job. The other thing that we should really talk about is what Hugo Strange's elaborate plan here is Ugh. and i i have some weird stuff with that because some of it seems convenient strange has transformed four corpses of former patients of his into these hideous monster creatures and one of them is like a giant baby man one is a spider monster. One is a multi-headed feathered lizard thing. And one is a moss monster. And I never quite understood how the moss monster got into the caves where they were bringing the civilians. Was that explained that I just missed it? Or was it just sort of convenient that they were leading the civilians into the caves and the monster happened to be there or the monster followed them. I think it's maybe that second out of those possible three. That was just kind of there. I never like a, well, Oh, it was just there as an excuse. Not, not my favorite. We get another super hyper prepared Batman moment with him having big spotlights and gun emplacements on various buildings throughout Gotham. I was waiting for them to almost start, you know, growing arms and legs and turning into mechs. Yeah. That's where I thought we were going. Yeah. I'm glad they didn't go there because that would have been way too much, but that's again, that level of hyper preparation. That's like, if Gotham has never been attacked by giant monsters before, 
And Batman has no experience fighting giant monsters. Why does he have the giant monster fighting buildings ready? And each one with uh, a team member symbol on it. That I chalked up to each of them entered their access code and it displayed the symbol for that one. I, I don't think they were all prepped for that. It was like, okay, you need to go to that building, but I really want to go to this one. I'm I'm right next to this no. one. That one's across the street. No. <laughs> no, that one's yours. This one's Nightwings. You're the Blue Ranger. You have to go to that one. Uh, they just they just they wanted to do a Power Ranger scene right there. You know they did. Oh, yeah. Power Rangers or Voltron, one or the other. We get Strange having created these monsters, and each of them, as it turns out, is basically him having broken down batman's psyche and each of them represents an aspect of what he has analyzed batman to be and he's eventually luring batman into a trap so he can take his place as a superior batman that last bit is well within strange's pathology as we've seen it develop over the years but I just don't know. Combining mad scientist and psychiatrist strange into one character is kind of a hat on a hat. Yeah. And it's another one of these, uh, one of these stories where the academic discipline doesn't exactly work. Scarecrow does not go from a psychiatry professor to an English professor, just because you know, uh, psychology and psychiatry maybe doesn't make you someone who can tinker with DNA. It's, strange i mean if he were a psychopharmacologist maybe if that was his thing was making psychiatric drugs but it seems like he's just a psychiatrist who sidelines as a guy who you know builds giant monsters it's it's a hobby yeah i tinker with dna on the side for fun the end also feels rushed the fact that Clayface, as you said, he, he basically covers the top floors of the building completely to s- choke out Strange, choke out the oxygen in the room. And Strange set up the whole trap where you know, if you touch him, the bomb goes off. It seemed like it, it was coming from a whole bunch of different places and we needed to wrap this thing up. So, yeah, we've got all this going on. There is a Star Trek The Next Generation level of technobabble in this story when it comes to the Monster Man. Programmable DNA with a catalyst and, wow, you just keep adding more and more layers onto what is going on with this stuff. And then you throw in that Venom, the Bane drug, is an aspect of it. And it's like, oh boy, speaking of hats on hats... What do you make of this? Um, Talking about the ending, I get to this epilogue scene with Bruce and Kate, and it looks like it's rendered in a totally different style. And I can't, I, I can't figure out whether it is a totally different style or if it was rushed or redone or just tacked on at the end. I don't quite understand, but does it? It looks different, right? I'm going to go back and check, but I, I do 
It looks different. I wonder if that has to do with the colors. This entire story has been shot in night. It's, it is the same penciler, but I wonder if have, if a day colored scene after five and nine tenths of these purples and blacks in the background shifting to a blue and green palette just makes it look so different. I wouldn't swear on my life that these pencils are the same, but that's just me. The only reason I say is that at least as the credits go, there is only one penciler on this book. So do I would you, assume. Do you trust DC editorial? That is a, a valid question. All I can say is based on the credits, it is the same artist. It's it's not like these poor people have a union that would dictate when somebody gets credited or not. True. When you've got that scene when the different symbols pop on the, the buildings, Poor Cass. Her symbol is just like the stitched up mouth of her mask. That That's not a great symbol. It's, it's I, I'm glad that she's Batgirl again and has a Batgirl symbol of her own. Because her and Spoiler with the purple O, not the best logos for a character. Yeah, Batwoman, you know, it's got the, the red bat, Nightwing, the wings, purple O, and stitches. Hmm. Yeah, at least, you know, Clayface didn't get a building where his symbol was just like a mud ball. <laughs> a little doody emoji. Okay, but I, I guess we still haven't completely gotten... The strangest plot is he releases these four monsters. Did we even say? I can't remember if we even fully went through it because it's just so weird. The four monsters that are aspects of Batman's personality. It was, that was just how he was going to lure batman into his trap couldn't he have just lured batman into his trap just send a bunch of monster men to kill batman smash and grab harvey exactly exactly smash the bat smash the bat become the bat that's what you're trying to do hugo you you don't need some of this crazy stuff uh, and Hugo wearing the bat costume only points out how little I like the bat costume in the rebirth era. Mm. Not, not my favorite Batman costume. I, I prefer something that's a little more bare bones. Yeah. I don't like the, the yellow outline, uh, the utility belt with ill definitions and the occasional purple accents. Uh, no, it's too much. Do you have anything? I've got one little fun Easter egg note, but other than that, I'm pretty much done. Uh, Milton is a weird name for a hurricane, and that's it. Mm-hmm. The one thing I want to throw in, and I again, one of those that's a, a nerd reference. The activation code for the the Wayne Watchtowers is Pinkney. Cyrus Pinkney was the architect who worked with Solomon Wayne to build the first tall buildings in Gotham. Nerd. Yep. We will eventually cover the story of Solomon Wayne and Cyrus Pinkney when we get to the Destroyer crossover. The first time Legends of the Dark Knight crossed over with the Corbat titles. And the beginning of the end of Legends of the Dark Knight. No, no, no. This was way back. This was a one-off. Issue 27. Oh. This was just, this was a big deal. 
because this was an issue of Batman, an issue of tech, an issue of legends. And it was the one that started taking the Anton first designs from the Burton movies, the really Gothic architecture and moving it into the comics. So Gotham had a really distinct look and didn't look just like Metropolis. Hmm. So we will get to that when we get to Destroyer, which is a story I want to cover. Well, we're going to cover all of them, Matt. Indeed we will. And on that note, I think it's time. But night of the Monster Man on the big board. Oh boy. Do you have a ceiling for this? I mean, this isn't like bottom of the list. This isn't the dress. No, no, it's pretty in most spots. Yes. Um, it's fine action, incredible, weird, fucked up monster designs, but not a lot of substance. Right. There's the stuff that would have made this more substantive, you know, more about Batman trying to deal with the fallout of Tim's death in a crisis doesn't get the pages it needs because two of these issues focus on Nightwing and because they're issues of Nightwing. I can't exactly fault that. We didn't even talk about, I I love the designs for when Nightwing and Gotham girl get turned into monsters. Nightwing is a bird monster. Kind of an aside in and of itself. Yeah. The, the, the two Nightwing issues feel like those issues of war games that were in Robin or Batgirl or Catwoman where it's like, yeah, there's all this other stuff going on and we're kind of paying lip service to it. But these books are about Robin or Batgirl or Catwoman. So we have to actually kind of focus on those characters. So those two issues have so much Nightwing in them that the, the plot sort of slows down to allow us to have Nightwing fighting monsters in Blackgate and getting turned into a Bat-Bird hybrid thing. Call. I do not think in good conscience I could put this in the top 100. No. Just because we just mentioned Gotham architecture and such, I don't think it's better than 111 Gates of Gotham. No, because for whatever was going on in that story, it was at least, you know, a story. It was cohesive. There were a solid character arc. Which means it probably goes under super heavy. Okay, here, since this is at least tangentially part of this run, how does it stand against 143? Everyone loves Ivy. Better than that. Yeah, I think this step. This, so, this, so we're in between super heavy at 121 and everyone loves Ivy at 143. So, that's at least a more limited range all right well here's here's one as you said this has generally really solid art how does it stand up against injustice gods among us at 131 which probably has a more cohesive narrative but the art is painful i I think we're starting to hit the right territory because well let's say this the stories in injustice and i am batman are at least as good as the art is here. And maybe the the story in this is better than the art that we see in Injustice and I Am Batman. So maybe a little above these, but not much. This feels like the right country. 
134 is zero year, which they reference repeatedly in here. That they do. And zero year is just so long. And and here we're always going to run into trouble because 135 and 136 are books that are both where they are because of compromises. I would have put Clown at Midnight and Blades much higher. But look, we we didn't just rank them. We we ranked them a long time ago. And that's one of the problems we run into with doing lists like this, because I think they're better than a bunch of the stuff above them. But because I would reread those, either of those, before necessarily I would reread this, but I would reread this before I would reread some of the stuff above it. It's it's a confusing morass about how some of these lists work. I would definitely put this above Injustice Volume 2 at 137. Yes. And I, I think this compares very favorably with 138, Brave in the Mold, a thin story with great art. Yes. Uh, Which I might th- have been our last Batman one-off. Yeah. Like thinking amongst like the tiny and run. And I don't think there was anything that was close to a one-off there, except for maybe you could argue 101. But while that is a one-off, that was a, you know, bridge the gap sort of issue where it's like, okay, we're dealing with the after effects of Joker war and we're setting up ghost maker. And it's not really part of either. So it's sort of a one-off, but it's so entrenched in what's around it that it can't really stand easily on its own. I think this is going to fall somewhere around 133. 133 is I Am Batman Begins. While a more cohesive story is brought down by really inconsistent art, but at least one chapter that is wretched, and the other chapters which, while fine... I mean, it's four issues and there's like six pencilers. This has three pencilers that while clearly different are at least have a feel to their art that is the same. And while I think the story in I Am Batman Begins is probably a little bit better, I think in between I Am Batman Begins and Zero Year. 134. Okay, and that does it for tonight. Next week, just in time for Valentine's Day, it's stories featuring three of Batman's non-Catwoman or Talia al Ghul love interests. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, June, come on, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Bye, two bucks. Tim Rooney and Giorgio Sergioli for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shout-outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Have a good afternoon, Huntsville. Ah, I got you, motherfuckers. We recorded this during the day. (laughs) (laughs) And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. 
For my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.